Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. April and her daughter Brooke lived in Barberton, a small city about 40 miles south of Cleveland in Ohio. Her mother, Judy Johnson, often babysat Brooke, and an hour away in Carroll County lived April's sister Melinda and her husband Clarence, who had been married 18 years and had two young boys. In 1998, Earl Mann, a violent criminal and convicted sexual predator, was serving time in prison. In June, he was released to a halfway house, and on June 3rd, he walked away from it. What no one knew is that he had returned to the home of his common-law wife, Tanya Brazil, and their three children. Tanya lived next door to Judy. Judy's neighborhood was run down, The six-year-old Brooke probably didn't notice. She was just happy to be at Grandma's house. On Saturday, June 6, it was a beautiful summer evening. The two watched Grandma's favorite TV show. Then Brooke went to bed in the bedroom, and Judy slept on the couch in the living room. Melinda was home, taking care of one of her boys who was sick. That evening, Clarence went out to a pub and had a few drinks with his friends. At 2.40 a.m., she was up taking care of her son when Clarence came home. Sometime between 2.30 and 5.30 a.m., 40 miles away in Barberton, Earl broke into Judy's house. He surprised her on the couch, strangled her, punched her, and beat her so hard that he broke her jaw, her nose, her collarbone, and her skull. Then, he sexually assaulted her and beat her to death. Judy was 58. Brooke heard her grandma being attacked and hid under the covers. When she thought it was safe to come out, she walked into the kitchen. There, she saw the shadow of a man. She was terrified. She ran back into the bedroom and hid under the covers and pretended to be sleeping. Earl followed her. All Brooke remembers is him punching her. She caught a quick glimpse of his face in the dark. While knocked unconscious, he beat and sexually assaulted little Brooke, then left her for dead. But she wasn't. Later that morning, she regained consciousness and found her grandma dead on the floor. She phoned a neighbor, but got no answer. NBC News described the message she left. I'm sorry to tell you this, but my grandma died, and I need somebody to get my mom for me. I'm all alone. Somebody killed my grandma. Now please, would you go get a hold of me as soon as you can. Bye. When no one called back, Brooke went to another neighbor for help. Covered in blood from head to toe, she ran to Tanya's house. 
She answered her door and told Brooke to wait on the doorstep. She was in the middle of making breakfast for her kids. Tanya didn't invite her in and didn't call 911. Little Brooke sat there alone on the doorstep, waiting. Forty-five minutes later, Tanya drove Brooke home. Her mom, April, opened the door and was shocked to see her daughter covered in blood, trying to tell her what happened. Brooke told her that the man had looked like her Uncle Clarence. April was trying to process everything. Her mother was dead. Her brother-in-law killed her. It didn't make sense. April's husband flew over to Judy's house, found her, and called police. A few hours later, in Carroll County, Melinda heard something outside. More than a dozen police officers rushed to surround her house. Clarence was arrested by the Barberton Police Department, handcuffed and put in the back of a patrol car, and taken away from their house, never to return. Clarence was charged with Judy's murder. DNA samples had been taken at the crime scene and from Judy and Brooke. DNA was also taken from Clarence. His DNA did not match the DNA at the crime scene. But that didn't matter to Barberton Police. They continued to build their case using other evidence. That evidence being one witness, a six-year-old statement that the man who killed her grandma and hurt her looked like Clarence. She never said it was Clarence. Melinda was positive her husband would not and could not have committed the brutal crimes. They lived 40 miles from Judy's house, which was an hour drive. It wasn't physically possible for Clarence to have committed the crimes and make it home by 2.40 a.m. His arrest and charges divided the family. The two sisters stopped speaking. April and Brooke couldn't believe Melinda was supporting Clarence, and Melinda couldn't understand how they could believe Clarence could have done it. At Judy's funeral, Melinda was shunned. Her family had turned their back on her. Later that day, standing alone at the gravesite, she made a silent promise to her mom. She vowed she would find out who did this to her and Brooke. Court records reveal that when April was cleaning up Judy's house, she discovered two bloody handprints on a lampshade and contacted police. They told her that they weren't needed for evidence because they had enough. And Sue Dalton, an alibi witness for Clarence, told police officers that she had seen him on the night of the murder. But they didn't want to hear it and responded, We got our man. We know that for a fact, that we have our man. And when Sue persisted, the officers told her that if she did not distance herself from Clarence, that she would end up in jail. Court records also revealed that on January 5, 1999, Earl was pulled over for a traffic violation and was arrested for two robberies. Earl provided police with his address at Tanya's. He was drunk and asked the patrol officer, Why don't you charge me with Judy Johnson's murder? 
the officer followed procedure and wrote a memo to the detective bureau that was investigating Judy's murder. He placed it in a mailbox that was emptied each day by one of the members of the department, who then circulated it to the detectives working on the case. He also placed the incident report on Earl's robbery into the same mailbox. Detectives received the incident report, but denied receiving the memo. The incident report with Earl's address, next door to Judy's murder, that should have gotten detectives' attention, but no one asked Earl about it. The memo was never handed over as evidence to Clarence's defense attorney. It mysteriously disappeared. A year after the murder, Clarence was still in jail waiting for his trial. Melinda had lost her job and their house. The legal bills were forcing her to the brink of bankruptcy. The trial began in the summer of 1999. In the courtroom, the families were divided. April and her relatives sat on one side. Melinda sat with Clarence's on the other. Prosecutors focused on Brooke's eyewitness statement and her testimony. Friends of Judy's testified that her relationships with Clarence had been rocky. Melinda testified that Clarence had been at home with her, 40 miles away from Judy's house, and the defense pointed to the fact that the DNA from the crime scene did not match Clarence. But none of that mattered. On June 4, 1999, after 13 hours of deliberating, the jury reached its verdict. Guilty on all counts. Guilty of aggravated assault. Guilty of rape and guilty of murder. In Melinda's head, a voice was screaming, her husband was innocent, and they're letting my mother's murderer get away. Clarence's defense attorneys had exhausted all their efforts to prove his innocence. Melinda knew it was now up to her. Armed with only a high school education, she took it upon herself to become an amateur detective. She learned what to do by watching episodes of Forensic Files on TV. She started by making a list of possible suspects. Dissecting her mother's life, she wrote down a list of 12 men in a notebook. A list of violent men. And she looked at that notebook every day. Then she returned to her mother's rundown neighborhood and visited places she knew the men hung around. She visited anywhere including bars, and sometimes had to flirt with them to get the evidence she needed. She collected their DNA from a cigarette butt, a strand of hair, or a glass they'd been drinking from. She didn't know how to go about getting their DNA tested, or where, or how much it was going to cost, so she stored the evidence in her freezer for a long six years. When Melinda had exhausted all her efforts and didn't know what to do next, she borrowed money from Clarence's family to hire a private investigator, Martin Yant, who told her she needed to reconnect with her sister April and her niece Brooke. So without calling ahead, Melinda showed up at April's house and knocked on the door. April opened it, saw her, then turned away, changed her mind, and turned back to face Melinda. With tears in her eyes, she hugged her and invited her in. 
The two sisters and Brooke talked things through, and it turned out that they too had doubts. Brooke remembered that the person who hurt her had brown eyes, and she knew that her uncle Clarence had blue eyes. Clarence's lawyers taped Brooke's deposition stating this fact and took it to a judge hoping for a new trial. Everyone was shocked when the judge denied the request, saying that he felt the family had pressured Brooke into recanting her story. Melinda was a fighter for justice, for her mother, her husband, and for Brooke. She wasn't giving up. She knew they needed more evidence, forensic evidence. The court would give them access to DNA recovered at the crime scene, but she would have to pay to get it tested, so she raised $40,000. She realized she needed more help, and she'd heard about the Ohio Innocence Project at the University of Cincinnati Law School. The program was run by former prosecutor Mark Godsey. He met with Melinda and found her honest and credible, and he was excited to hear that she had DNA evidence that hadn't been tested yet and agreed to take on the case. But then Melinda found out how expensive it was to test DNA, $25,000 for one test. Mark and Melinda convinced a lab in Texas to do it for half price. They could afford to have two pieces of DNA tested. But which two pieces should they choose? There had been almost 50 items collected at the crime scene that ranged from clothing to bedsheets. In the end, they chose to test a sample taken from Judy's body and another from Brooke's underwear that had been found under the couch. The DNA testing revealed that neither sample matched Clarence. They went back to the court again. For a second time, they were turned away. The court ruled that because Clarence had been convicted on eyewitness testimony, the jury would have reached the same decision even if the DNA had been presented and denied his request for a new trial. Seriously? This is shocking. Melinda realized that the only way to free her husband was for her to find the real killer. She went back to her notes and read them over and over. Then one day on her way to work, she stopped to pick up a local newspaper and a headline on the front page caught her eye. Earl Mann had been charged with the rape of his three children and Tanya Brazil had been charged with child endangerment. Tanya's name jumped out at her. Melinda had always wondered why her mother's neighbor made Brooke, covered in blood, wait on the front doorstep before taking her home, and why didn't she call police? Melinda didn't know Tanya had a common-law husband, and she'd never heard Earl Man's name before. But something in her gut told her this was the killer. She found out he was already serving a seven-year sentence in jail, so she found out where he was and pretended to be someone else and wrote letters to him. She wrote 18 letters in total. With each one, she asked him to write back in the hopes that he would lick an envelope and she would get his DNA. But Earl never took the bait. 
Then she discovered he had been transferred to another prison, the exact same prison Clarence was in. Not only that, he ended up in the same cell block as Clarence. The New Zealand Herald reported that Earl put out his hand and tried to shake hands with Clarence, but Clarence's instincts told him he was bad news and he wouldn't have anything to do with them. One of Clarence's lawyers came up with a plan to obtain Earl's DNA. When Melinda visited him at the prison, she asked Clarence to try and retrieve a discarded cigarette butt from him. It took some time for the opportunity to present itself, and court records indicated that one day he noticed Earl had left a cigarette butt in an ashtray on a table in the recreational area. He asked another prisoner to watch it while he ran and got some paper to pick up the butt with so that he wouldn't taint the DNA evidence. Clarence hid the butt in a Bible. The next day, Earl attacked another inmate and was transferred to another prison. Clarence spent the next two weeks trying to obtain a plastic bag using the prison's black market. He eventually got a bag, dropped the butt into it, and mailed it to his lawyer. The DNA from Earl's cigarette butt came back a perfect match to the crime scene. Even with the DNA evidence, attorney Mark Godsey was afraid that no matter what evidence he took to the prosecution, they would deny Clarence a new trial. So he reached out to another prosecutor, Ohio State's Attorney General Jim Petro. Jim felt that the DNA evidence in this case was pretty compelling. Now, he couldn't force the prosecution to reopen the case, but he used his power and clout to publicly pressure them. Mark then learned of another DNA test, one that was more specific and could be done using a hair sample. In the fall of 2005, another DNA test was ran and again came back belonging to Earl. And court records reveal that an officer allegedly falsified a police report to hide evidence that Brooke was unsure that Clarence had attacked her. By now, the media was following the case closely in all its twists and turns. It was 10 days before Christmas and Melinda was hoping Clarence would be home for the holidays. Melinda and her legal team planned a press conference to demand Clarence's release. But then, just minutes before the press conference was to start, they received the news they'd been hoping for for seven and a half years. On December 15, 2005, the Summit County Prosecutor's Office announced they'd made a mistake and that they were dropping the charges against Clarence immediately and that he would be released and that Earl Mann would be charged. At 42 years of age, Clarence finally walked out of prison a free man. He was met by Melinda, their sons, April and Brooke among many friends and family members, and a throng of media. Clarence was home in time for Christmas. Earl Mann was indicted on June 29, 2007. He pled guilty to Judy's murder and the rape and assault and attempted murder of Brooke. His trial began in August 2008. The Times reporter in Ohio reported that he stood before the judge at his hearing 
and five times repeated the word, guilty. As his victims confronted him, he stared straight down at the floor, never looking up. Clarence spoke about the years he missed with the sons while they were growing up, and he told Earl, You're never taking anything from me or my family again. Brooke's mom, April, spoke to the day she was cleaning her mother's house and found a small bloody handprint. That handprint belonged to her six-year-old daughter. Now 16, Brooke stood up to speak. She stood at the microphone, still and silent, for an entire 60 seconds. Then April and Melinda stood up, walked over, and stood by her side. Without a tear in her eye, Brooke found her voice. She asked, what had she done? What had her grandma done that they should be victims? Then she told Earl, I want you to die. To escape a death sentence, Earl took a plea deal and was sentenced to life in prison for 55 years. He will be eligible for parole when he is 92. For his wrongful conviction, the state of Ohio gave Clarence a million dollars. He then sued the city of Barberton and four of its police officers for withholding the evidence and received just over $5 million in compensation. Sadly, Melinda and Clarence's marriage dissolved shortly after his release, although they continued to be friends. Melinda stated that it was a lot for them to come back from. Indeed, it was. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Robert Hoofman, who decided that the way to improve his financial means was to extort a million dollars but his plan left a complete stranger dead. Then a chance encounter with police and a footprint in the snow led to his arrest. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, We'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.